Hey, it's Jen. And before we jump in, I just want to mention that for some of these news topics today, the story is rapidly developing and things may have changed by the time you hear the podcast. For the latest on everything, keep up with your public radio station and follow updates at npr.org. Okay, with that, let's jump into the news roundup. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Nyla Budu of Axios Today, in for Jen White. Let's get to the news roundup. Mr. Chairman, on this vote, there are nine ayes and zero noes. The resolution is agreed to. Thursday's meeting of the January 6th committee ended with a cliffhanger. In a unanimous vote, the House committee has voted to subpoena former President Donald Trump. On this morning's morning edition, committee member Jamie Raskin said this wasn't just a poetic exercise and that being a former president does not entitle him to skip out on the law. What happens now? Could the former president be compelled to appear? We'll break it all down, plus the latest on local politics from across the U.S. as America gears up for the midterms. Todd Zwilich is the deputy D.C. bureau chief for Vice News. He's also host of the series Breaking the Vote, all about threats to democracy. Todd, welcome back to 1A. Good to be with you. Ron Elving is a senior politics editor and correspondent with NPR. Ron, always great to have you here, too. Always good to be here. And Wendy Benjaminson is the deputy managing editor for U.S. government in the economy at Bloomberg. Wendy, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. On Thursday, the January 6th committee voted to subpoena former President Donald Trump. According to the Washington Post, just three other presidents have been issued congressional subpoenas. The last time it happened was the 1950s. Let's start with the big obvious question here. Will former President Trump appear? Is that a jump ball? I, 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 I'm not sure. Anyone can take that one. I, I, guess, I guess I would have to hazard the guess that we will not see him sitting there as we have seen other witnesses sit before the committee. Now, there's probably going to be a good deal of going back and forth between them. Uh, there's talk that he might actually be willing to do it if he could structure it in his own way and have it live TV. He likes live TV. And if he could structure it that way and speak at length with no limitations and answering no questions, uh, he might be willing to do that. That's obviously not what the committee had in mind. And even if he agreed to do it, who knows whether he would follow through on that. There's not that much time left, actually, in this Congress, and it probably wouldn't happen for some months to come. So it seems more like a I will not just call it a gesture because I think it's important that the committee finish in this fashion, but it does not seem likely to lead to an actual dramatic evening. A televised audience national televised audience watching Donald Trump go head-to-head with his nemesis, Liz Cheney, would be an irresistible audience for uh, one of America's most popular game show hosts, which is Donald Trump. On the other hand, there are some people who definitely don't want him to appear. First of all, I, I agree with Ron. I think it's extremely unlikely that he would ever do this. I think in his heart, he probably wants to do this. But the people who rein him in are his lawyers. They have to stop him from stepping on a major rake here. You have to remember that for all of the bluster, for all of the truth posts, for all of the tweets, for all of the appearances on Fox News, if he appears in front of the January 6th committee, he will do it under oath. And prosecutors in Fulton County, Georgia, in Florida, in the Mar-a-Lago case, in Washington, D.C., in the fake electors grand jury, and possibly other investigations into the coup attempt, will all be watching. And anything Donald Trump says there will be can be used against him. He will have a choice. He can 
lie if he wants to, which subjects him to perjury. He can tell the truth, which may subject him to um, uh, prosecutorial discretion in many other criminal cases around the country. Um, So he has to make a choice there. And if I'm his lawyer, and believe me, I'm not, I am doing everything I can to tug on his belt and keep him out of that room. I'll I'll go a little farther than my colleagues here and say Donald Trump will never be at a witness table. I would I'd bet real money on that. First of all, in any legal entanglement he has, whether it's his business, whether it's personal lawsuits, whether it's politics, he he has a tendency to lengthen the the arguments as long as he can. He went all the way to the Supreme Court with the special master. He will um, lengthen this until in the hopes that Republicans take over Congress in January, and then certainly he won't have to testify. Is there any precedent indicating the Supreme Court could force him to testify? It doesn't seem like it right now because they've they've turned down his request for the special master. They could make an argument that it's that presidents shouldn't be sub, former presidents shouldn't be subjected to this sort of thing, but it has happened before, uh, going all the way back to Tyler and then Truman in the fifties. Um, so you know. If the Supreme Court is as originalist as it says, then they will, they might allow it. They've expressed no interest in helping Donald Trump with these cases. They voted exactly. eight to one against Donald Trump when he tried to obstruct the committee and hide his documents from the committee. The one was Clarence Thomas. Um, eight to one in that decision. Just yesterday, as Wendy mentioned, they voted um, that that 103 classified documents um, – uh, can't be taken. Uh, can't be subjected to the special master decision in, in uh, contravention of the Eleventh Circuit. So um, the Supreme Court really, in Donald Trump's obfuscation and delay operations in these various cases, which which really is is what they are to a large extent, has shown no interest in being a part of it so far. Ron, to your point about the timing of all of this. It's less than a month until the November elections. If Republicans gain control of Congress, it's pretty certain this investigation is done. So what does the rest of this year look like for this committee? They're going to prepare a report. And that is what all investigations on Capitol Hill wind up with. They produce a report. And it will probably be quite lengthy and it will probably not be widely read. It will be widely interpreted and those interpretations will get a lot of attention. But like the Mueller report, which was several hundred pages and very, very little read, even this executive summary was quite lengthy, uh, it's probably not going to be their major impact. Their major impact will be determined by whether or not other branches of the government, executive and judicial, follow through on some of the evidence that's been brought forward. But that's up to Merrick Garland, Attorney General, and ultimately up to the courts, as it was in Watergate. So has this laid the groundwork for future criminal prosecution? Well, they've certainly... They've. It's no doubt that one of the main audiences of this committee has been the attorney general and various U.S. attorneys who could charge. Um, Has it laid the groundwork? You know, there's a chicken and egg thing here. It is true that there was no federal grand jury investigation going when this committee started. That's true. It's true that there's at least one now. So we know we know that the fake electors uh, part of the coup plot is being criminally investigated, and we know that several possible plotters have had their phones taken, their homes raided. We've seen all that news. Um, if you asked the prosecutors and probably the attorney general behind those decisions whether the committee is the thing that lit the fire under them to get them to do it, I'm sure that they would say uh, no. But the last point I'll make is that in an evidentiary um, uh, standpoint, the committee has been way ahead of DOJ prosecutors in the amount of evidence they've gotten and the amount of evidence they've put out. 
Yeah, I think this really lights a fire under the Justice Department. They're wrestling with whether to charge him with mishandling classified documents, which has been bumped down to a misdemeanor in previous cases. If they have an aim to charge Donald Trump with a crime, seditious conspiracy is a heck of a lot better than mishandling classified documents. So I think they'll take a good, strong look at this. And let's consider, too, that a big theme, in fact, the theme of this most recent committee meeting, whether called a hearing or a meeting, it was premeditation, that this was all a plan, that it was in place before Election Day, that people were openly talking about the plan to deny an election loss. Simply say, I won, I won. Anything else you're seeing on TV is simply false. I wanted to play a moment, actually. We heard from Cassidy Hutchinson, a former aide to Trump Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. On Thursday, the committee showed her testifying that Trump was, quote, raging when the Supreme Court rejected him on a key case involving the 2020 election. So he had said something to the effect of, I don't want people to know we lost, Mark. This is embarrassing. Figure it out. We need to figure it out. I don't want people to know that we lost. Wendy, how big of a deal is it for Trump to admit that he lost in 2020? Well, it was obviously a, then a private conversation, but it, it's amazing to hear him actually acknowledge. I don't think any of us really believed that Donald Trump believed in his heart he won the election. I think this is all part of his hucksterism, his, you know, if I say it, it must be true. But to hear him say, I just don't want people to know, sort of reveals what we've all always known about Donald Trump, that it's all about the show. There is a good reason, though, while the, why the committee is harping on this point of his state of mind, which goes back to your earlier question that you asked just a minute ago. If Donald Trump is going to be prosecuted uh, in Washington for a charge like seditious conspiracy, more likely for conspiracy to obstruct federal proceeding or for um, basically fomenting this coup plot and being the head of it, his state of mind might be important in that case. The fact that he knew he lost and pursued a fraud anyway against the election, against the people, the Constitution or the Congress, take your pick, um, that could be very important. So the committee really there, when you say, have they spurred on the Justice Department or made a criminal case, that's that's part of what they're trying to do there is show the public the state of mind is there, put a little pressure on the Justice Department that uh, the mensurea, the state of mind of Trump knew he lost and did it anyway. They showed some other examples of that as well. Like, I think that's what they're thrusting at. One question we got from a listener, Michael is asking, since the January 6th committee members were handpicked by Speaker Pelosi with her rejecting Republican names presented as members, why should any independent voter trust any conclusions? Most of the evidence that's been brought forward by this committee was brought forward by Republicans. Most of the people who have testified and the things that we have heard that were most damning have all come from Republicans. Now, the structure of the committee... The Republicans were offered an independent commission that they could have structured any way that they could have agreed to. But when they refused that, well, then it had to be just a House deal. And if it was just going to be a House deal, the Speaker of the House is going to have something to say about it. Uh, she did not reject any Republicans. She rejected two specific Republicans who are, let's face it, basically targets of this investigation They're to some part degree. Of the plot. <laughs> Absolutely. So she said, not those guys. And they said, well, then, okay, then you can't have anyone except those two apostates that were kicking out of the party anyway. We've got a lot more headlines to cover. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Remember to join us for future conversations. Download the 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail.
This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. Introducing Group Sessions, a new BetterHelp therapy offering currently in pilot testing. Therapist Joy Bergheimer shares how finding a community of people with shared experiences can help clients become more comfortable with therapy. For quite some time, we have not normalized mental wellness, and a lot of our families would shame you when you would say that you were feeling depressed or you're feeling overwhelmed. If you have been told over and over again that, Basically, you have a character flaw. If you're seeking therapy, that's going to be a reason that people don't want to go seek therapy. But actually being in group with other people and hearing them say a story that feels like it came right out of your book is huge. Like, oh, my gosh, this is not abnormal. Right. And this person is further along in their journey than me. So now I know that therapy is something that can shift things for me. So really seeing their peers has been a huge shift for people accepting therapy for themselves. To get 10% off your first month of online therapy, go to BetterHelp.com slash 1A. You're listening to the News Roundup. Let's get back to the conversation. Let's get to more of the actual content of yesterday's meeting. At one point, the committee played footage of several political leaders attempting to get help during the insurrection. Here's Speaker Nancy Pelosi talking to an unidentified woman on January 6th. There has to be some way we can maintain the sense that people have that there's uh, some security or some confidence uh, that government can function and that we can elect the president of the United States. Did we go back into session? We did go back into session, but now apparently everybody on the floor is putting on tear gas masks to prepare for a breach. Well, I'm trying to get more information. They're putting on their tear gas masks. Yeah, she says at the end there, do you believe this? What did you all think when you were watching that? I, I found it striking, um, striking in the way that love or hate her politics, Nancy Pelosi maintained calm. She worked on her. She showed her passion for the legislative process to get this task done, this routine task of certifying the people's choice of a president. And and then the, the video goes on to show her calling various area governors and, and mayors to try to get some help um, to the Capitol, because it was clear from what she was watching on TV that, that things were going badly. And we see her gathered with a number of Republican leaders, including Mitch McConnell and his number two, John Thune, from the Senate side, uh, talking about what they're going to do next and establishing this resolve that whatever else happens, they're going to leave Fort McNair, their safe location. They're going to go back to the Capitol, whatever hour it has to be, and they're going to get this done on this night because one of the aims of this insurrection was to just delay and push away the official certification of the election so that claims could then be made that it needed to be determined in some other way or that Congress had somehow or another uh, delegitimized itself. So they were determined and they got it done and the Republican leadership was on board at that time pretty much across the board including the Republican leaders in the House. One thing that's striking to me about that scene and the other scenes that were filmed is the contrast. Also around the power circle there when Schumer and Pelosi are yelling down the phone, there are several different scenes of trying to get the acting attorney general or military leaders, um, secretary of the army to mobilize forces. Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader, is, is standing there too. Kevin McCarthy famously was on the phone with Donald Trump on January 6th. They came to very strong words, lots of, um, lots of swears and, and uh, accusations 
accusations during that conversation, too. And the part of it that is the most striking for me in retrospect, watching Republican leaders and Democratic leaders together trying to get security and help to help people on Capitol Hill to stop the acute riot, much less the broader coup attempt, is what Kevin McCarthy did in the aftermath, which is 19 days later, traveled to Mar-a-Lago to rehabilitate and kiss the ring of Donald Trump, and then later... um, really endeavored to uh, obstruct and cover up this committee. It's an, it's an enormous contrast. Not only did he refuse his own subpoena and refuse to tell what he knows about the worst attack on democracy uh, probably in 200 years, but he threatened witnesses publicly. Uh, he threatened telecoms that obey subpoenas. This is the probable future Speaker of the House. And the, the contrast of that for me, seeing Kevin McCarthy around that group as they're pleading for help, really, to now and his posture in front of that committee when it was uh, for the benefit of Donald Trump to me is is truly shocking. And also the conversations with Vice President Pence, how closely in contact Speaker Pelosi was with him. Absolutely. It was very telling because, as Todd said a moment ago, politics sort of went out the door. This was a group of people in danger trying to figure out in the moment how to keep them, their staff their colleagues safe. And um, so, you know, you saw Nancy Pelosi on the phone with Vice President Pence, who's sort of explaining he's not, of course, at the White House, as we recall, he was at the Capitol. And he is in a safe space with his family and, and law enforcement. And they are trying to work out how to keep it safe. But given the tensions that led up to this moment, it really was striking, as Todd said, that that but that there was a moment of bipartisanship, if that's what it takes. But it, it happened. And go ahead, Ron. Well, I was just going to say Pence was a key figure for the plot. If he could have been persuaded to somehow object to the vote from Arizona or Georgia or another state and say, mm, no, we're not sure, we've got some other electors, that would be referencing a situation from back in the 1800s where there really were competing sets of electors with some legitimacy and that tossed the entire matter into the House of Representatives, which was the plot's intention. So if Pence had played along, this might have all eventuated somewhat differently and it was when he refused to play along that the word went out to the rioters outside the Capitol that Pence was not on board for what the president had told him to do, President, former President Trump had told him to do. And that's when they break in and really start rioting and try to get in the chambers. That he had betrayed them. And it's also worth remembering as we talk about that scene of Schumer, Pelosi, Thune, McConnell, Kevin McCarthy around the, around the cell phones, is that military leaders have testified in this committee as well. That when the riot was going on and pleas for help were coming, it was Mike Pence who was on the phone trying to get the National Guard security forces onto Capitol Hill. It was Mike Pence calling the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, calling other military leaders. The calls they got were from Nancy Pelosi, leaders on Capitol Hill, and Mike Pence, and not ever once, according to Mike Milley, from Donald Trump. To your point, Todd, we just got a comment from Mary. The January 6th hearing revealed a huge deficit on part on the part of U.S. security agencies. They knew the insurrection was a threat. Why is no one talking about this big hole in staffing and preparedness? Wendy, we did hear some see some new information yesterday, text from the Secret Service to Mary's comment. Absolutely. And that you know, was sort of subsumed by some of the drama of of Pelosi and all of that and that video. But that was 
truly shocking. They knew, they'd heard that thousands of Proud Boys armed to the teeth were coming to the Capitol. And what, they didn't call 911? They didn't call Muriel Bowser, the mayor of D.C.? They didn't call anyone? They didn't go to the Oval? Well, maybe going to the Oval wouldn't have helped, but they didn't, um, you know, they didn't apparently do anything. And I believe that is one of the next steps of this committee is to figure out whether the Secret Service's information, in fact, did go to anyone. We honestly don't know whether it did, but clearly there was a deficit of law enforcement there on the Capitol that day. There is a vast trove of communications from within the Secret Service uh, in these days and hours that has been lost, at least as far as we know, has been lost to history, has been lost to time because they were erased. Uh, Despite the fact that people were interested in them and asking for them, uh, someone had a motivation to erase them in the time after January 6th. Uh, There might be a great deal that we could learn about the internal workings of the Secret Service. I think that's very much something that's been highlighted here. We need to know what they were being manipulated to do, what they were being prevented from doing, and who was doing it. Let let me just say, because Ron makes a very important point of text messages from January 5th and January 6th that have all been erased from Secret Service phones. Um, It's it's a scandal in and of itself for a premier security agency, a cybersecurity agency, in addition to body protection, which is what the Secret Service is. The excuse that these messages went away as part of a data migration um, smells really, really, really bad. And I would just like to commend people to the reporting of our colleague, Carol Lennick at the Washington Post, who is the best reporter in America on the inner workings of the Secret Service and who has reported extensively, not only on the text messages and the erasure, but the broader culture of the Secret Service and the concerns even before this point, that there were Trump loyalists in important positions in the Secret Service that many in the professional operations of the service felt were too politicized, too loyal, and that the Secret Service had become a kind of palace guard. One of those people potentially is Tony Ornato, who's a central figure in uh, the testimony that we heard over these weeks and months. He's a central figure in the story of, you know, Trump lunged for the SUV steering wheel. Ornato was, was, according to Cassidy Hutchinson, the person who told that story, then said it wasn't true, and as far as we know, has refused to say it under oath. Read Carol Lennox's reporting about the concerns of the culture within the Secret Service, and it also goes to this story. Yeah, she had written an entire book about the Secret Service before any of this. So, you know, she is the expert. I want to ask you really quickly about something you brought up, Todd, about Mar-a-Lago, because we also heard during the hearing that the Supreme Court had rejected a request from the former president to intervene in this document's investigation. Can you just quickly remind us what he was asking for here? Um, Donald Trump's lawyers asked for the special master review in the first place. Um, So uh, the... Um, investigators from the DOJ took thousands and thousands of documents out of Mar-a-Lago. They're reviewing them, um, especially not only for uh, intelligence assessments, but in a criminal investigation. Trump went to the court and said that I need a special master, an independent person to review all these documents because there might be privileged information in there, not only attorney-client privilege, but I have executive privilege, which most experts say he doesn't have. Um, And he demanded this review. He was granted 
the review by a by a, a a lower federal judge, somebody that he appointed in a ruling that really most credible legal experts thought was very very bad and without a whole lot of legal substance. I'm giving you this background to say that the special master, the guy that was appointed to review all these documents, then became an issue. There, a higher court had ruled this a trove of classified documents, about a little over a hundred classified documents, some top secret, some top, top secret compartmented. Really sensitive intelligence, apparently. We don't know what the substance is. Um, uh, that Donald Trump wanted those documents to also be subject to the special master review. Now, why? You say, why did Donald Trump want this so bad? The answer is delay. He wants this process to take as long as possible. He had asked the court to have this process extend into next year after the election. He wants this process to take as long as possible. Really, if I can interpret that a little bit as a non-lawyer, but a bit of a political watcher uh, and a Donald Trump watcher, um, he wants this this decision, if he's ever charged, to be as far into the election as possible so that he can claim political persecution. The Supreme Court said, nope, uh, the DOJ can review this information. The special master doesn't have to touch it. You don't get to delay this to next year. I'm Nyla Boodoo. You're listening to 1A. We're talking to NPR's Ron Elving, Bloomberg's Wendy Benjaminson, and Todd Zwillick of Vice News. Let's shift from national politics to local. The president of L.A.'s city council is out of a job after leaked audio of racist comments threw the city into chaos this week. Three council members, Nuri Martinez, Gail Cedillo, and Kevin DeLeon, were heard making bigoted and homophobic comments in a leaked recording of a strategy meeting from last year. Martinez resigned, but Cedillo and De Leon still have not stepped down. One of the few racist comments on the tape was about the son of fellow council member Mike Bonin. Bonin's son is black. I am still trying to wrap my head around everything that was said and everything that is happening. Uh, my husband and I are both uh, raw and angry and heartbroken and sick for our family and for Los Angeles. That was L.A. City Council member Mike Bonin during a council meeting earlier this week. At this meeting, the three council members were discussing redrawing council district boundaries. What questions does this raise about the redistricting process? Well, it raises a number of questions, um, Nyla. And, you know, I was going to say Republicans are always the ones who get blamed for the redistricting that, you know, changes a district. So, for example, even though Texas, all of Texas's urban areas are Democratic. It is such a red state, and that is largely because of redistricting. But but in in the coastal states, you know, New York and California, this this Democrats are very good at redistricting too. And I think that they were talking about redrawing districts to to um, <clears throat> excuse me to strengthen Latino power in the city at. I guess, the expense of black power in the city. And these are two ethnic groups that have long been um, competing in Los Angeles, and this really brought it to a head. But, but you know, redistricting is a nonpartisan um, evil, I guess. I believe it's about half the population of Los Angeles is Hispanic or Latino, and uh, they have five seats out of 15. So that is either gerrymandering or it's transition. And there are a lot of neighborhoods that are in transition and in a 10-year redistricting process, if that's the, the time frame for them, it is usually. Uh, there's going to be a certain amount of transition. So you can say that this is going slowly. You can say it's going far too slowly and there, there are thumbs on the scale. And 
racism is not limited to the dominant race majority. Uh, it can be expressed by people who are members of a racial minority towards other racial minorities or other people. So in this particular instance, the, the rarity is the extraordinary exposure of it through this, through this tape recording, which was leaked and apparently no one seems to be disputing its authenticity. Uh, I'm also reminded of all the immigrant groups that came to the United States. They had a, they had a common enemy in the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant establishment. The Anglos had the votes. They had the power. Uh, and to some degree, those immigrant groups banded together to establish themselves politically and did so. Uh, but there was also a great deal of friction between them along the way. And, and I think we're of, seeing both of that now in L.A. Yes, exactly. Power protects power um, very reliably, especially in these redistricting questions. Um, I, I really like Ron's comments about the broader picture here. One little piece of um, fight that's going on behind this also is um, – Fights over redistricting on the L.A. City Council are pretty old. There's a there's a commission connected to the city council that was supposed to try to take some of the rank politics out of this because it's not a new problem. It's getting pretty obvious to people in L.A. that that structure has failed. And I think this is going to strengthen calls to have a fully independent redistricting body that is not controlled by the council, doesn't answer to the council. It doesn't do anything about the rank and horrific racism um, that was on those tapes. And that's a much deeper issue that Angelinos have to continue to deal with. Frankly, we all do. If you want to talk about the power grabs of gerrymandering on the city level, this could spur uh, that thing I just talked about and try to make it independent. It's the News Roundup. We'll be back with more in a moment. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. Let's jump back into our discussion of some of this week's biggest headlines. Let's go from California to the heated Senate race in Ohio. Democratic nominee and Congressman Tim Ryan is up against Republican J.D. Vance. The two candidates debated Monday night and abortion was a big flashpoint between the pair. Both referred to the case of a raped 10-year-old from Ohio who had to travel to Indiana for an abortion after Roe was overturned. Ryan accused Vance of calling the rape, quote, inconvenient. It's a significant tragedy, and he thinks that we should have Ohio state law, which says if you're raped or incest, uh, pregnant through incest, that you should be forced to have the baby. How is abortion affecting the political calculus in Ohio and beyond, Ron? It is, to some degree, the Democrats' best issue. I mean, you can say that the distractions of Donald Trump helped the Democrats as well, but in a time of runaway or appears to have been run away for at least a period of time, inflation, uh, maybe under some greater control now, but that's hurting Democrats badly. They need to change the subject to something entirely non-economic, and along comes the Supreme Court and overturns Roe versus Wade, which we were told could never happen, including by several of the justices who voted to do so. So that's been a big shock, and it's made a lot of women, I think, take politics a little bit more, more seriously, not just women, but particularly, I think it's fair to say, women had grown up with the idea that they had reproductive freedom as established by Roe versus Wade. And to be suddenly told 50 years later that that is no longer the case uh, is the sort of thing that does make people get a little bit more interested in a midterm election. 
Ron, you're absolutely right. And the gift that the Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe versus Wade, uh, gives to the Democrats politically is that it takes independent women and suburban women, and I do agree with you, Ron, it's probably mostly women who are passionate about this issue because it is a constitutional right taken away from women, that... uh, that the gift it gives to the Democrats is that women who might have voted Republican for economic issues or other social issues or just because they are Republicans might vote Democratic because they want to preserve abortion rights and that's the only way to do it. There is also some evidence that it's already played. We have limited evidence about how big of an issue this is going to be in the election. I'm sure you've talked about Kansas and the abortion referendum there that really shocked the political world and told everybody, "Uh oh, this is going to be a massive issue in the midterms. There have been one or two special elections. There was one in New York where abortion figured heavily in a Democrat, won a race. Uh, His name is Pat Ryan, uh, won a race that he probably is on the bubble. He probably shouldn't have won. And abortion was a major issue in that special election as well. The people who watch voting registration around the country have been saying over and over that registrations are way, way up. And since the Roe decision, the number of women who are registering to vote has uh, basically gone off the scale. Um, sometimes that's not broken down by party. Sometimes that it is. Sometimes it is. But but women are registering in droves. I think it's safe to assume that that tilt is probably not due to the core inflation rate. It's probably due to abortion. <laughs> although, although I will say the, the flip side of that coin, Todd, is that while abortion is a issue that, as I said, drives a lot of passions, particularly among women voters, it is also for, I venture to say most women, a theoretical issue where the economy the price of groceries, the price of gasoline, the inflation rate, all of that is hitting people directly, viscerally right now. That And the Democrats have to try to measure if they want to win. The They have to try to balance that out and remind people of the importance um, of the Roe decision. Just to add in leaving this issue that it is no longer strictly about Roe because, well, that's gone for now and it's going to take a while before there's an opportunity to either codify it in law or bring back more court cases to a different court. That's going to take a long time. But the most immediate manifestation of this right now, and I think this is meaningful to a lot of women, is that in many states, the Republicans are moving to go beyond what the Dobbs decision strictly would have established, the state uh, jurisdiction is one thing. They're using that state jurisdiction to simply ban abortion, to simply ban it. And sometimes with an exception for rape and incest, but uh, not always. So with that very much on the table, with that very much at issue, uh, that is a little bit more immediate news. Yesterday, the Social Security Administration announced it was raising its cost of living adjustment by 8.7 percent. That's its highest increase in over four decades. Acting SSA Commissioner Kilolo Kijakazi wrote in a statement, quote, this year's substantial Social Security cost of living adjustment is the first time in over a decade that Medicare premiums are not rising and shows that we can provide more older Americans who can count on the benefits they have learned, end quote. Let's just talk about inflation, Social Security, and what this means for Social Security beneficiaries in the U.S.? Well, it's it's certainly good news in the immediate moment for Social Security benefit, uh, beneficiaries in the U.S. Uh, it will help stave off some of the effects of inflation for people who are on fixed income. It doesn't do much for 
those people's children who may not have the money that they are. I mean, we are now going to be giving their money that they're putting in to current Social Security beneficiaries. And of course, there's been a fear for many years that Social Security uh, will run out of money at some point and that that will be a, a bad day. So, you know, the trouble is that the politically, the Biden right now is going through some real mathematical gymnastics trying to make this uh, trying to make this uh, report yesterday sound good. He was trying to just talk about core inflation, which takes out food and energy. And that wasn't great yesterday that either. Was, it wasn't a great day for the president <laughs> yesterday. To try right. to spin that is... So a, when you look at the core inflation numbers, that was also bad news. It was also bad news, though he tried to say it was good news. He tried to say it was 2%, and it's just not. Right. So yesterday <laughs> at a California rally, the president said, quote, if Republicans win, inflation's going to get worse, end quote. Politically, what do these inflation numbers mean for Democrats ahead of November? There can't be anything worse for an Bad. incumbent party. <laughs> I mean, if, if everyone is looking Real around, and, and the thing about the thing about gasoline prices in particular, and they were not a big part of this last month's inflation. They had actually been coming down in the late summer. But now they're going back up again, as we all know. And that has to do with OPEC deciding to cut back production. So this was warned and this was we were told that the prices might go back up this fall. But just as we approach the election in the last weeks and days, uh, people are going to see higher and higher prices as they drive down their thoroughfares and leave the freeway. They're going to see these signs, whether they're stopping for gas or not. They're going to see the signs and they just keep saying inflation, inflation, inflation constantly. If you go out to dinner, if you buy anything in a if store. If you go to the grocery store. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Food in particular, it, it really, really bites. Yeah, it's bad. I, I don't know that I have a whole lot to add. Um, you know, Democrats point out a lot that this is a global phenomenon. Uh, we're not to blame. Uh, that doesn't really fly with anybody. Um, presidents get the blame. Uh, the party gets the blame. Right. When and, Biden said earlier this week on CNN that the U.S. is doing better than most other countries. Yeah. And, and I mean, it is it is true that inflation is a global phenomenon. There is not a country with a major economy that is not suffering something similar or worse. So that's true. But a voter driving to work and filling their gas tank and trying to go out to eat doesn't live in the U.K. and doesn't live in Germany either. So it's not entirely relevant. The sympathy points that you get like, oh, we all got it rough, doesn't doesn't really fly too much in politics, Wendy. And the thing is that Biden isn't wrong when he says if Republicans win, inflation is going to go up. It is because of economic factors that were laid out. But then the question the voter has to have in her mind is whether she believes they will change it. Let's move on to crime and some big stories that we saw this week. The man charged with killing 16 high school students and a teacher in Parkland, Florida, is facing life in prison without parole. That means not the death penalty. Here's Lori Alhadef, who lost her daughter Alyssa in the 2018 shooting. We are beyond disappointed with the outcome today. This should have been the death penalty, 100%. 17 people were br brutally murdered on February 14, 2018. I sent my daughter to school, and she was shot eight times. Todd, first, what do we know about the jury's thinking here? Why was the death penalty taken off the table? I, I can I confess I don't have a window into the jury's thinking. I wish that I did. Um, I don't know if Ron or Wendy, you, you guys do. Um, I, have any jurors been interviewed or have they said why they arrived at this verdict? Because I don't know. I, I'd love no, to know. No, they haven't. But they talked about in the reading of the sentence, they talked about mitigating factors. And the only thing I can possibly imagine is that 
the shooter is a young man himself and that then it takes a lot of a jury to order the state execution of a young man, even if he has killed 17 people. There was, I am not in any way excusing what happened. Life in prison without the possibility of parole is not an easy street for this young man. He will, he will suffer. I can also viscerally understand how the parents feel today. And we did hear from one angry parent. What's been the general response from families and survivors on The people who have been outspoken are the people who are angered by the injustice of it. And certainly in any sort of eye for an eye sense, this is a terrible injustice. At the same time, there is another way of looking at the death penalty and whether or not it is a true deterrent to crime. Uh, would, Would someone... Uh, who would commit an act of this kind be rational enough at any point in their mind to be thinking about what the penalty might be. Uh, Many of the people who do these kinds of mass shootings, it's almost a form of suicide at at the beginning that they, they expect to be killed in the process. They expect the police to kill them. It's been called to some degree suicide by police. So whether or not it's a deterrent is another question. Whether or not it is just depends on your moral system. Uh, I do think this is a person who is going to suffer for the rest of his life. And perhaps, in a sense, that's the ultimate justice as well. I'm just reading very quickly because I wanted to answer your question. Um, According to one report I see here, of the 12 jurors, three voted against the death penalty. One was a hard no and, and convinced two other jurors to do so. And that's where they arrived. I'm Nyla Boodoo. This is 1A. Let's jump to Connecticut to end here in a very different type of crime. A jury has ordered far-right conspiracy theorist Alex Jones to pay nearly $1 billion in damages to the victims of the Sandy Hook tragedy. How did the jury come to this figure, and what's been the response from those families? I'm not familiar with the actual formula that they might have used. The The idea is that this is broken down among many families. This is not a, an amount of money that would go to one particular family, and they're trying to make some sort of a calculation. Uh, but really, the purpose of a judgment like this is to it, – I mean, certainly it's not going to result in the exact payment of that amount of money or anything like it. But the real purpose of a judgment like this is to put someone such as Alex Jones out of business so that from now on, if he ever does uh, make money doing what he does, it's probably going to be attached so that some of this judgment can be paid. So he has the choice. He can work for that judgment or he can stop working for money doing what he does. So Jones did proceed to mock the verdict on his Roku streaming show? 80 million, 100 million, blah, blah. You get a million. You get 100 million. You get a 50 million. I mean, but to your point, Ron, how much does this ruling make other conspiracy theorists think, tw- think twice before targeting families and ruining people's lives through their media platforms? Alex Jones, I would like to say, is on a planet by himself. Unfortunately, it appears not to be so uninhabited as that. Uh, there are probably going to be other people who are deranged enough and and – amoral enough to do this kind of thing on the radio in order to be shock jocks and to get attention and make a great deal of money. And and Alex Jones has made a great deal of money, uh, he and his company. So there will be an attempt to hide assets. There will be an attempt to escape making these payments. And so that, too, will be a full employment for a number of lawyers. Because I do think the next question is how likely is it that he'll be paying this money? Well, by the way, it's not over. This is compensatory damages. He still has to be uh, hit for punitive damages. Um, in terms of planet Alex Jones and who happens to be on it, I think we have to point out, 
there are members of the United States Congress who are on that planet. And I say that because they leapt to his aid. They leapt to his side. As soon as this judgment was rendered, uh, members of Congress like Marjorie Taylor Greene and others on Twitter assailing the verdict, assailing the damages, standing up for Alex Jones' free speech rights, which weren't really the issue here at all. Um, I I think overall for the conspiracy industry, does it dissuade anyone? Look, this is a cost of doing business. It's not only lucrative financially, it is lucrative in terms of – Uh, cultural impact. You have elected officials, members of Congress who are close to leadership now uh, and the very top of the conservative movement on your side and ready to boost you when stuff like this happens. So I think the disincentive uh, is is, uh, actually quite low, uh, despite the large eye-popping numbers. We're almost out of time. If you can just give me one story that you all, that we didn't talk about or that you're watching for next week. Ron? Watching next week to see, I think, th- going back to the January sixth committee to to see where where this goes, where where the discussion goes. This was a, this was a week in which you know Donald Trump had uh, the disappointment in the SCOTUS, uh, the Supreme Court decision that went against him, and what happened here. The the Mar-a-Lago documents is another factor, and also that rape case from back in the nineteen nineties. There's just so much going on in that world. We'll have to leave it at that. Ron Elving is senior politics editor and correspondent with NPR. Wendy Benjaminson is the deputy managing editor for U.S. government and economy at Bloomberg. Todd Zwillick, deputy D.C. bureau chief for Vice News. Thanks to all of you for joining me. Let's end this hour with a remembrance. It's a guest, it's a guest, sakes alive and I'll be blessed. Wise been poor and thank the Lord I've had the napkins freshly pressed. Dame Angela Lansbury heard here as the voice of Mrs. Potts in Disney's Beauty and the Beast. Died earlier this week in Los Angeles. The British actress got her big break as a teenager, playing a maid in the MGM movie Gaslight. But it wouldn't be until almost her 60s that she would become a household name. Lansbury landed the role of Jessica Fletcher on the hit TV series Murder, She Wrote at the age of 58. Ms. Fletcher, you have quite a reputation as uh, an amateur detective. But uh, I'm really not a trained investigator. Uh, even my fictional heroes um, have to have some clue to go on. I mean, if a murder was committed, where is the body? The show would last 12 seasons. Her career spanned more than 80 years, during which she appeared in movies, theater stages, and television. Here she is talking to the New York Times about her career as an actress. They weren't going to groom me to be an over-the-title star, but then I never was really that kind of material. If I had been knocked down fantastic, you know, Betty Grable legs and, you know, this and this and this, maybe I would have been able to force them to put me up there and to build me into a big movie star. But I was hampered by the fact that I was, and I can say this in all honesty, I was too good an actress. I was primarily an actress and not a pretty face. She got her first Tony in 1966 for her starring role in MAME and went on to win Tonys, Golden Globes, and Emmys. Angela Lansbury was 96. Taylor's old as time True as it can be Barely even friends 
Somebody bends unexpectedly Just a little change You're listening to the News Roundup. We'll be back to discuss some of the biggest headlines from around the globe in just a moment. Remember to connect with us on Twitter. Tweet us at 1A. And the beast Ever just the same Ever a surprise Ever as before Ever just as sure As the sun will rise You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Nyla Boodoo of Axios Today, in for Jen White. Let's get into the global edition of the News Roundup. On the line from the Chinese capital, David Rennie, Beijing Bureau Chief for The Economist. Hi, David. Hello. From Washington, Courtney McBride is a diplomacy and foreign policy correspondent at Bloomberg News. Courtney, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. And joining us from London, Prashant Rao is a senior editor at Semaphore. Welcome, Prashant. Thanks for having me. There's been no let-up on the missile strikes on Ukraine this week. The attacks have left more civilians dead and injured with critical infrastructure close to the capital, Kyiv, being hit. According to the mayor of Mykolaiv, his city has been, quote, massively shelled. Ukraine's president, Vladimir Zelensky, is calling for more international assistance. And on Thursday, NATO said it was set to deliver counter-drone equipment to the country. Courtney, Ukraine's not seen this level of aggression from Russia since the early days of the war. Can you quickly sum up what's changed here? I think uh, the analysis seems to be that that Putin is becoming more desperate um, and that the indiscriminate attacks and attacks on civilian targets and infrastructure um, are really evidence of that. Um, European and other uh, allies and partners of Ukraine are, are trying to counter that by providing additional air defenses. Um, and Putin, for his part, claims that uh, such massive strikes are not going to be required again for now. But, um, you know, we will see what the future brings. Right. And Courtney, to your point, Germany is stepping up its program to deliver the first of four high-tech air defense systems. Each can protect an entire city, according to Germany's defense minister, Christine Lambrecht. Germany will deliver the first of four Iris TSLM air defense systems to Ukraine within days. The renewed missile fire on Kyiv and many other cities shows how important it is to supply Ukraine with air defense systems quickly. Spain is also supplying new air defense technology as well to Ukraine. That news came as U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin met with other NATO defense ministers on Thursday. Prashant, what else did we learn from this meeting and why are we only now learning about this push to give Ukraine some options for Russian missiles? I think one of the interesting things that we've seen over the past several months is, um, you know, Europe is obviously, you know, proximate to the conflict, much more than the United States. But really, uh, it's the United States that's um, leading the charge in terms of helping Ukraine, providing um, defensive technology, providing training, providing military equipment and aid. Um, And, you know, just, you know, both you and Courtney sort of talked about the barrage that's come in the last several days. And I think that's really changed how Europe perceives this war that it's not something that can kind of just provide relatively token or much certainly much smaller amounts of assistance proportionately given the size of their combined economies. That's been a huge thing. I think the, the thing that's going to become really interesting um, in the next sort of few weeks and months um, as this continues and, you know, Jens Stoltenberg has talked about this. He's talked about this in his press conference after that NATO meeting is you know, at a certain point, Western stockpiles are going to start running low and this is going to become a real difficulty. 
to your point about, Prashant, about how Europe is changing, this week we also heard calls from China and India for both sides in the war to de-escalate. Both are two of Russia's biggest allies. They've so far refrained from criticizing Moscow's invasion. David, you're in China. Is there any sign that Beijing may be looking to distance itself from Moscow? Uh, no. This was, I'm afraid this was misreported in the, in the American press. Uh, there was a press conference at the foreign ministry straight after these first missile strikes where they said that uh, they wanted uh, all countries' territorial integrity to be respected and they called for all efforts to bring peace. And this was reported as a, as a rebuke for Russia, but in fact it's language the Chinese have been using since the very beginning. Their position is basically pseudo-neutrality, where they claim to be this peace-loving giant that wants the war to end as soon as possible. But at the same time, if you watch uh, Chinese state media, if you look at comments from Chinese officials, they consistently and continue to blame the war on the Americans, on NATO. And the Chinese game is to try as hard as possible to divide the West by saying that this is an American war, uh, so that American warmongers of death, like the arms industry and members of Congress, can prolong the war and hurt Europe to remove Europe as a potential rival and to contain Russia, which had no choice but to defend itself. So it is not a neutral position at all. And although clearly China is disappointed to see Putin being humiliated in this way, uh, they are all in on fundamentally using it as an excuse to be anti-American and anti-Western. And so there was no real rebuke at all. David, then I'm curious your take on what India said this week. India's in a really tricky position because if you remember, you know, we have all these summits in D.C. where President Biden invites uh, Prime Minister Modi and says this is one of the world's great democracies, that in this great clash between democracies and autocracies, uh, India is a tremendous ally. There's also a lot of interest in places like America in wooing the Indians because the Indians have their own grave concerns about the Chinese who are very uneasy neighbors with border clashes. And so there's a sense that maybe you can peel the Indians away from their traditional non-aligned, fairly pro-Russian position. The problem is that India gets all of its most advanced weapons from Russia at the moment, and it also is making a ton of money buying Russian oil and then, in fact, refining it and reselling it. And so India is kind of playing both sides of this. And I think the fact that the Americans have not been giving the Indians a hard time about their really very sort of sneaky position is because it is absolutely the, the ambition of the Biden administration to try and make India more of an ally in this confrontation with Russia and China. But to be honest, the Indians are looking after the Indians' own self-interests. We're talking to David Rennie, Beijing bureau chief for The Economist, Courtney McBride, diplomacy and foreign policy correspondent at Bloomberg News, and Prashant Rao, senior editor at Semaphore. On Wednesday, the U.N. General Assembly voted to condemn Russia's annexation of four Ukrainian territories. 143 countries voted in favor of a U.N. resolution. Russia, North Korea, Syria, Belarus and Nicaragua voted against. Ukraine's U.N. Ambassador Sergei Kozletsia made these remarks hours after his own family back in Kyiv had come under attack. A trail of blood is left behind the Russian delegation when it enters the General Assembly. And the hall is filled up with the smell of smoldering human flesh. That's what we have tolerated too long in Syria. That's what is happening today in Ukraine. Courtney, President Biden told CNN this week that he has no plans to talk to Vladimir Putin. And we'll talk about Putin's nuclear threats in a moment. Is his only option to double down on this fight for Vladimir Putin? 
Uh, it would seem that way, and his his rhetoric certainly has escalated. As you know, he has mobilized uh, 300,000 Russians uh, in an attempt to uh, offset significant losses in the military, um, both in personnel and in equipment. Um, and I think, you know, we're seeing these veiled threats of, of nuclear first use, um, what I think the West is hoping doesn't doesn't happen. Um, but yes, I mean, it, it seems as though the only path for uh, a Vladimir Putin who refuses to take any potential off-ramp uh, is, to, is to keep pushing forward. Prashant, what can you tell us about Russia's new military commander, other than he's been nicknamed General Armageddon? And the interesting thing about this new general is that he I mean, obviously that uh, that nickname is a, a little terrifying, but he's got a long history in the the Russian military. Uh, he's you know uh, overseen uh, Russian operations in Syria. Uh, he um, was part of operations in several ex-Soviet states, um, and you know also the interesting thing is uh, sorry, there are many interesting things about this, um, but the fact that um, the Russian Ministry of Defense also announced him uh, to. You know, so publicly, and um, now he is, you know, one of several senior military changes in just the sort of eight months since this invasion took place. Um, you know, you could take his appointment um, in so many different ways that this war uh, is about to get much more brutal. We've already seen that, uh, but also it sort of betrays a level of uh, uncertainty, of um, disarray uh, in the weeks, um, in the period since the partial mobilization was announced. David, I'm intrigued to know how much coverage the war is getting on Chinese state media and if what Prashant is saying about sort of the disarray, if any of that is being conveyed? Absolutely not. No. I mean, this place is is always extremely strictly censored, but this is a very sensitive question because remember, President Xi Jinping back at the beginning of this year around the Winter Olympics uh, held this real kind of uh, bromance with Vladimir Putin. They signed this joint statement, basically sort of declaring themselves to be, uh, to have this unlimited friendship, uh, uh, basically against the West and against America. So he doesn't want to be linked with a loser. And that is, so the Chinese people are not being told just how badly things are going. Every night on the Chinese state TV news, I just watched it tonight, um, you have this very terse kind of shots of sort of uh, tanks firing weapons. And it says, the Russian army says it attacked this place. The Ukrainian army says it counterattacked that place. And then you go straight into someone like the the most recent, I think, the Nicaraguan foreign minister saying that this is all the fault of the Americans for trying to uh, sell weapons in order to extend their uh, their reign of death. And so the Chinese public does not know on the whole that this is going very badly wrong. Uh, but of course, what's interesting is if you talk to scholars uh, connected to the Chinese military, they are watching this and they clearly are shocked to see the Russian military, which is a source of advanced weapons for China, uh, doing quite as badly as it is. And so no mention, obviously, then of Crimea in the bridge. Like, that's no one knows anything about that. They did. Uh, but with, I think, the second day, we uh, we had headlines of we saw shots of the bridge with traffic going across it and trains running across railway lines. It said the bridge is repaired and uh, and Putin says he's going to punish the perpetrators. And so it's, it's very, very censored. On Tuesday, President Biden spoke to CNN's Jake Tapper. It was the president's first public opportunity to address remarks he'd made over the weekend about Putin's threat to use a nuclear weapon and his fears over what he called Armageddon. He, in fact, cannot continue with impunity to talk about the use of a tactical nuclear weapon as if that's a rational thing to do. And it could end in Armageddon. And you still are afraid of that, though, that it could. 
Well, no, I don't think anyone, any rational person saying the initial use of tactical nu- of a nuclear weapon, killing thousands of people, does not have the prospect of leading to something that can be way out of control. Prashant, we sometimes hear about lawmakers getting found out for saying the quiet thing out loud. But what sense do you have that President Biden is being deliberate here, alerting everyone as to how this high the stakes have become? I think one of the difficulties with President Biden is um, he does say many things that the White House does walk back over time um, when it comes to Taiwan policy. Um, You know, what was it? For goodness sakes, this man has to go with regards to Vladimir Putin. Um, And so, you know, the difficulty with the president is um, I I, I do think to some to some extent there is uh, an element of um, he's raising a a correct issue. But in the past, he has said some things that uh, the White House has subsequently said, no, that's not our policy. This nuclear threat did come up when the U.S. Defense Secretary spoke to reporters on Thursday in Brussels. You should know that we take this very seriously uh, and we continue to watch indications and any type of warning that he may have made a decision to go in a different direction. We've not seen any indicators at this point that would lead us to believe that. But again, it's not something we look at once and leave alone. This is something we remain focused on 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's Lloyd Austin speaking after his meeting with his NATO counterparts in Belgium earlier this week. European leaders have been keen to turn down the volume after President Biden's stark warning. French President Emmanuel Macron said, I've always refused to engage in political fiction, especially when speaking of nuclear weapons. David, what's your sense of what President Biden's statements are about? Everyone is treading an incredibly difficult path, right? Because uh, you want to show resolve. Uh, but you don't want to be the person that escalates. And the truth is that no one wants to respond to uh, something as insanely dangerous uh, as a Russian uh, tactical nuclear strike on the sort of Ukrainian battlefield or worse, Ukrainian city with a nuclear strike. And I think that, uh, you know, so for President Biden to admit how high the stakes were was actually in some ways just reflecting where all the leaders are. I think in some ways that people are more upset uh, in NATO government circles with what President Macron said, because what President Macron in France did was he sort of gave the game away on strategic ambiguity and said that uh, he said he was being interviewed by France 2 uh, on Wednesday at the main TV station there. And he said that France's nuclear doctrine uh, is based on the fundamental interest of the French nation. And those would not be affected directly if, for example, there was a ballistic nuclear attack on Ukraine. And so he was basically saying, you know, this isn't going to rise to the level of a, of a, of, of a nuclear war. This is, And I think that was Macron trying to kind of cool uh, the heat. Because Macron is, remember, one of the Western leaders who has always consistently tried to offer himself as a sort of someone who can be a bridge to Putin. Uh, he's been criticized for that. He would defend himself as saying someone has to be talking to Putin. You can't just leave him to stew on his own. And so they are really trying to, you know, it's, it's how do responsible governments interact with a, a wholly irresponsible nuclear power, which is Russia under Vladimir Putin? And there's no great answer to that. And so you're seeing all of them trying their own slightly different approaches. In that same CNN interview, President Biden called his Russian counterpart a, quote, rational actor who had made a massive miscalculation. Courtney, what signs are there, if any, that there are some in Putin's own inner circle that agree with that assessment of a miscalculation? I mean, I think it's it's difficult to, to try to... Uh insert oneself or to predict what's going on in, in what is a, a very close uh, echo chamber circle uh, for Vladimir Putin. Um, you know, we've we've heard 
speculation going back months that, you know, that he could be on the way out or, um, you know, or, or that he would be forced to reverse course. And obviously, you know, we're, we're nearing the eight month mark since the invasion. Um, and so I, I, I would be loath to, to speculate about that. Let's move on to news out of China. The country's ruling Communist Party is set to kick off its 20th National Congress this Sunday with Xi Jinping expected to secure a third five-year term as the party's leader. Leader, David, what's China's National Congress and what do we expect from this event? So this is a party congress uh, and this is a very visual reminder uh, that this is a country where they have a national government and they have a national parliament which has its own annual meetings. But above that, far more important is the Communist Party. And so, in fact, I'm talking to you from a quarantine hotel in the north of Beijing because COVID controls are so unbelievably strict that although I have not left uh, Beijing for more than a month, uh, I have to quarantine for 48 hours with everyone else who's going to be in the Great Hall of the People on Sunday uh, just to make sure that we're extra safe and, you know, endless COVID tests. We're going to see on Sunday uh, President Xi Jinping uh, in his role as General Secretary of the Communist Party. He's going to kind of set out the last five years, the next five years, and then over the week, uh, we're going to see them choosing the next standing committee. And at the end, we're going to see uh, whether President Xi is going to stand for another five years, at least, maybe 10. And we'll know that because he will either n- signal that he's chosen a successor or we suspect he may not have chosen a successor. And I can tell you, the propaganda machine is at an absolute fever pitch. You know, all arms of state media are pumping out the idea that China is uniquely blessed to have a helmsman of the wisdom of Xi Jinping in this great historic storm, this confrontation with the West and America, a time of great changes in the world, and just endless kind of eulogies that he is this, that the helmsman, uh, the core of the party, the great leader, the people's leader, these extraordinary uh, eulogies. But actually, there's a lot of headwinds. Uh, This is not going to stop him getting the top job, but we have an economy that is in not great shape. Uh, We have uh, covid uh, controls now nearing their third year, which are really clobbering the economy. I mean, just, you know, consumer demand is way down. No one can travel. Businesses are really hurting. Property sector is in trouble. He backed Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine. So if this was a normal country with elections and normal politics, Xi Jinping would be in all kinds of trouble because he's made some very, very big decisions. And a ton of those big decisions are looking really bad right now. But This isn't a normal country. It's a communist party country. And this great communist theater that I'm about to witness is going to anoint him for at least another five years as supreme leader and sort of unrivaled at the top of the party. I do want to get to the successor question, but I just want to stay with this theater for a moment. David, what does this National Congress look like? How many people will be there? Can you give us a sense of what that's going to be? Yeah, so if you've ever sort of seen foreign visitors arriving in Beijing back in the days before COVID, where they, and they, on the side of Tiananmen Square, kind of at right angles to the Forbidden City, you have this enormous 1950s building with the pillars on the front, the Great Hall of the People. And it's this just kind of this palace in marble and chandeliers and red carpets. There's going to be over 2,000 delegates in there. Um, you have this enormous amphitheater, a huge gold hammer and sickle, red banners, uh, you know, sort of endless... Uh, sort of smartly uniformed uh, staff with cups of tea with the little lids that they'll be putting in front of them, potted ferns, you know, the whole kind of, it'll look very like something you might have seen 50 years ago under Chairman Mao or back in Stalin's Moscow. It's incredibly old fashioned. Some of these rituals haven't changed in decades. But behind this theatre, really serious 
power decisions are being made that are going to set the direction of how this country operates and its ambitions for the whole world. So the job of all of us, the very, very small number of foreigners who are here, and it's a really tiny number, our job is to try and see behind the kind of the curtains and the red flags and to understand the power dynamics that are actually playing out in the midst of this theater. So to that point, how important is it the person who comes on stage after she? Does that give us a clue as to who the next leader will be? Yeah, this is the oddest thing about China. So this is the second largest economy in the world. We're in the year 2022. And you have countries like America, where sometimes you have presidents who tweet their innermost thoughts out, you know, for the world to see. This place remains as secretive as it ever was. So we will know the next leadership of the Communist Party of China based on the order that a bunch of guys, and it will be guys, walk out on stage behind Xi Jinping in about a week from now on a red carpeted dais past some potted ferns, and we will be looking and seeing what order they walk on in. We knew that Xi Jinping was going to become the top leader uh, 10 years ago because 15 years ago at the, pre- at the previous party congress, he walked out just ahead of his main rival and everyone went, OK, so he's the next boss. Five years time, he was the next boss. And so we're looking for the similar thing. If in a week from now, behind Xi Jinping in sort of close order, we don't see anyone who is who's the right age. So if we only see people who are either too old or too young to be his successor in five years, that is how the whole world will find out that he hasn't chosen a successor, which is an incredibly strange way to choose your leadership uh, in a country of this importance. Courtney, I wonder what sense we have uh, from President Biden, if we'll hear what we'll hear from the U.S. about any of this. I think, uh, you know, the U.S. will do its, its level best to avoid appearing to uh, weigh in on the internal politics of another country as, as is policy. Um, but given the decision to, to name China as, you know, the, the greatest uh, pacing threat and challenge to uh, U.S. national security, they'll certainly, uh, you know, be watching closely to see the, not just the choreography, but uh, but what it means. Um, and I think so much is, is still opaque, even to the, the closest of China watchers. And, and uh, I think like Prashant, I'll, I'll defer to David on, on the specifics. One other topic that's bound to come up during China's National Congress will be the country's zero COVID policy. China has seen a growth in infections due to the BF7 variant. That's a spinoff of Omicron's BA5 variant. And in response, David, as you've been telling us, travel has been limited. Businesses have been closed. How else are people in China dealing with this latest surge? So China, it's important to understand just how different China is from every other large country in the world now. Basically, the way that it works here is, as it has done since the beginning of this pandemic, the beginning of 2020, a single case of COVID in this country is treated as a public health catastrophe. Everyone, so if they detect someone who has COVID, and remember, we're all tested at least once every two days here, the whole the whole of Beijing around 22 million people, we have to get tested every two or three days. Um, if you test positive, you are taken, dragged off to an isolation clinic or a quarantine site immediately, then everyone you've met is taken off to a quarantine site, then everyone they have met, contacts of contacts. So one case of COVID could generate two or 3,000 people being quarantined within, say, 24 hours. That's the way the system is built. Uh, You have to scan a QR code with your smartphone everywhere you go so that your movement is tracked in real time every time you enter a shop, 
uh, a metro station, you catch a cab, you take a train, your movements are logged all the time so they can track you for COVID controls. They have not been vaccinating people recently at, in any numbers at all. They've never approved the foreign vaccines like the Moderna's and the Pfizer's. They have put everything on control and elimination. And it's a political issue because we will hear for sure Xi Jinping at the Congress, which I'm about to watch, saying that China's ability to have so few cases, and they do have very, very few cases at an incredible cost, that this is superior to de decadent, selfish, individualistic countries like America, which where people are too selfish and spoiled to do things like wear face masks or isolate themselves, and that Chinese communism is a morally superior system because it has saved so many lives. And that boast is so important to his political legitimacy at the moment that the entire country is basically being held hostage in a, in a zero COVID policy that has saved lives because they have a very weak hospital system and they haven't vaccinated people, but is also ultimately not sustainable. And you're absolutely right to mention these new variants because there is, they're just getting more and more contagious over time, which is how all major viruses respond when they're under pressure uh, from control measures. They respond in an evolutionary way by becoming more contagious. It is going to break them at some point, and it is already breaking the economy. And do we have any sense, David, of how Chinese vaccines are handling these variants? The whole vaccine thing is just a sort of, you know, a sort of forehead slapping frustration. You know, I've had three of the Chinese vaccines, uh, like a lot of people. I haven't had a vaccine for nearly a year now, which means that it's, essentially I have no protection from that Chinese vaccine at all. They could roll out a fourth shot. That would do some good. They're not doing it. There are uh, perhaps 100 million old people who have not been properly vaccinated, which is a big reason why they can't open up. They're not pushing them to get vaccinated either. It is all on this system of complete control and monitoring everyone's movements and tracking everyone in real time. And it is just a baffling, self-defeating mistake. Let's move to the Caribbean. Haiti has been in a state of upheaval for weeks. Thousands of Haitians have been in the street calling for the resignation of Prime Minister Ariel Henry. Large parts of the capital, Port-au-Prince, are being ruled by rival gangs violently vying for power. And the country is in economic freefall. Haiti's faced decades of stability. The prime minister has called for international intervention to help quell gang violence, a move that's being rejected by many Haitian protesters. This request is an unconstitutional act. This is an act against the state. It is an action against the Haitian people's demands who want a free country where everyone can eat, have health care and live like human beings. Courtney, it's hard for me to just sum up in that one minute there what's going on in Haiti. Can you tell us a little bit more about what conditions Haitians are dealing with right now? Sure. Um, in addition to the political instability and the gang violence that you referred to, I mean, that the gangs uh, have enacted a, a fuel blockade that is preventing really critical resources from getting through, even for humanitarian needs. Hospitals uh, are struggling to operate. There's a cholera outbreak in the country. Um, the U.S. And, and other regional partners have been working to uh, to try to, to send support uh, to Haiti. But as you said, you know, there's requests from Ariel Henry for an international armed force is a controversial one. Uh, the U.S. government is certainly not... Uh, not saying that it will participate, uh, but both uh, Ariel Henry and the UN Secretary General have encouraged uh, some sort of international intervention to help stabilize the country. We've seen this before, uh, after natural disasters, after other uh, political upheaval, and it's it's really unclear what will what will work 
best uh, for the Haitians and, and what um, will end up being palatable for the public as well as the government. Prashant, to Courtney's point, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres proposed a, quote, rapid action force to be sent in to help Haiti's police deal with armed gangs. How likely is that to happen? I mean, I suppose there is a likelihood to it. I think one of the difficulties with this is, um, you know, the U.N. has quite a checkered history in Haiti itself, um, you know, from kind of the spread of cholera to sex abuse by peacekeepers. Um, And so... This is not, you know, uh, the sort of silver bullet, uh, to use a cliche, um, to help Haiti. Just understandably, there is these weeks of turmoil. In fact, it's probably been more than that since the assassination of uh, the president. And so the idea that just a rapid action force perhaps could quell some of the recent unrest. But there are much deeper problems that Haiti has to deal with that um, just sending peacekeepers, which, again, as I say, have had a checkered history in Haiti, um, is not going to sort of solve Yes, and particularly, as you said, um, the we know that Haiti has a complex and troubled history with particular UN and foreign peacekeepers, to your point about not just cholera, but sexual violence. Courtney, Secretary Blinken has said the Secretary General's request is under review. The UN has also called for sanctions against several gang leaders. Will any of this stop the flow of arms and violence? I think, the, I mean, the U.S. has, has imposed its own sanctions. Uh, other countries have, have considered or, or done the same. Um, I think we've seen with various crises around the world that, that sanctions are a tool, but not, uh, as Prashant said, a silver bullet uh, to change behavior, and particularly for um, extra-governmental groups like gangs. I, I, it's hard to imagine um, that, that this is really going to be the deciding factor that that causes them to to alter their approach or just suddenly allow uh, the flow of humanitarian goods and and uh, and just suddenly improve the the situation on the ground. Big news out of the UK: British Prime Minister Liz Truss called back her finance minister from the IMF meetings, Kwasi Kwarteng in DC, and he was sacked. She spoke earlier today. As Prime Minister, I will always act in the national interest. I want to be honest. This is difficult, but we will get through this storm and we will deliver the strong and sustained growth that can transform the prosperity of our country for generations to come. Prashant, can you just sort of sum up what the last couple of hours in London have been like? (laughs) I mean, uh, where do you begin? Um, It has just been incredible. Uh, The I mean, to start this story, you'd really have to start a few weeks ago when uh, the British government proposed, uh, Kwasi Kwarteng and, and Liz Truss proposed just a, a remarkable, what they called a mini budget in which they kind of cut taxes, uh, but didn't uh, subsequently you know, sort of balance the books. And Britain is now in a space where the markets don't trust the government to um, long term pay off the remarkable amount of debt that this government is willing to add. Um uh, Truss quickly was criticized by um, senior members of her own party. Her poll ratings just fell through the floor. Um, you know, I think I saw one poll today that says should, uh, among conservative party members, 9% believe that they chose the correct leader um, in this kind of moment. 9%? Uh, it's just, I mean, some of the numbers when you look at them are just, you have to sort of do a double take. I mean, there were, you know, the early, the first poll that I think really uh, changed the conversation was um, a poll in which her party was 31 points behind uh, the opposition Labor Party. I mean, these numbers are just 
mind-boggling. Uh, you know, especially when you look uh, at the United States, where it's always sort of uh, pretty tight-fought elections between the Democrats and the Republicans. This is, and so now, you know, in theory, she has until 2024 to call an election. But more and more, there's, I mean, among the more absurd kind of um, uh, views of this or sort of coverage of this is one British newspaper is has a live feed right now on YouTube where they are um, checking whether Liz Truss, the prime minister, will outlast a supermarket bought lettuce. And um, they have a YouTube feed uh, that everyone can tune into. And last I checked, there were 800 people watching. I mean, it is astonishing drama here. David, from your perspective in Beijing, uh, I wonder if you could just speak to Liz Truss's fiscal plan now. Is this enough to ensure economic stability in the UK? No, I don't think so, because the structural problems are just gigantic. What you really have here is uh, the sort of the Britain is is, is about as small an economy as you can be and still have a reserve currency and still be a massively important financial sector. And so if you don't have the confidence of international money markets, you cannot get away with being a reserve currency, uh, with being a major financial center. All of that based on being kind of trustworthy and predictable. And one of the things that's just been one of the most extraordinary political journeys of my lifetime is that the Conservative Party, uh, who, you know, as the name suggests, used to be relatively keen on stability and uh, certainly being pro-business, since really Brexit, uh, when a radical kind of, uh, in the view of The Economist magazine, in my own view, a terrible mistake was made to leave the European Union, which was always going to be a disaster for the economy, it then became this kind of forcing function that to be a leader of the Tory party, you had to either say that you'd always wanted Brexit, in which case you're basically nuts, or that you now realize what a brilliant idea Brexit was, even if you hadn't supported it in the past, which is the case with Liz Truss, which means that you're an incredibly cynical and ambitious person. And so almost kind of mechanically, we forced everyone decent out of the Tory party. And you now have basically uh, loonies and shills at the top. And we've, you know, we've been we thought Boris Johnson was irresponsible and pretty bad as a prime minister. Liz Truss, during the leadership race to take his job, uh, was challenged by the man who was then the Chancellor of the Exchequer, who, listening to Liz Truss's plans for these very, very large unfunded tax cuts, these very radical plans to kind of do this kind of sort of pseudo-Reaganite kind of shock therapy to get the economy going with tax cuts, he said, this is going to cause a massive problem for the pound. You're going to have a run on the pound. The international money markets are going to come after us. This is a very dangerous thing to do. And she said, oh, typical negative thinking. You know, we're going to, no, no, no. You should just be more confident in Britain. He was right. She was wrong. The markets are now hammering the UK. And it's really dangerous because we are too small an economy to be playing with risks like this. I'm Nyla Boodoo. You're listening to 1A. Let's end on global oil consumption. In that interview with CNN's Dick Chapper, uh, President Biden said there would be, quote, consequences for Saudi Arabia's relationship with Russia and OPEC's decision to slash oil production. We should, and I am, uh, in the process when the, when the uh, uh, this House and Senate gets back, they're, they're going to have to, uh, there's going to be some consequences for what they've done with Russia. What kind of consequences? Menendez says suspend all arms sales. Is that something you'd consider? I'm not going to get into what I'd consider and what I have in mind, but there will be there will be consequences. Courtney, what do we know about what the Biden administration could do here? Well, uh, I mean, Jake had it right in that arm sales are, are sort of the obvious low hanging fruit. Um, you know, I have a, a story out this morning with a colleague um, about this. The Congress uh, certainly has the ability to restrict arms sales. Saudi Arabia's military is incredibly dependent on especially highly complex U.S. weapon systems. 
And so even just getting supplies of spare parts and, and support for maintenance of that equipment is absolutely critical to their continued operation of their military. Um, there aren't really a lot of other avenues uh, other than what is being referred to as the NOPEC bill um, that would allow the U.S. to sue oil-producing countries for uh, market manipulation using American antitrust laws. Um, that has some bipartisan support, but it's, it's something of a, a, a controversial approach. And so, Prashant, quickly, just for me, I'm just wondering what the perspective is for you from London on this? I think the uh, certainly the perspective in Europe is um, about how we see so many shifts in the energy market that are really playing out in real time and very um, uh, on day to day life. Uh, Germany has just sort of put out a statement today that it's finally reached ninety five percent of its natural gas reserves. This is a live issue for the winter. Um, oil prices and natural gas prices are very closely tied together, and so whatever uh, OPEC Plus has done uh, with regards to oil prices will, you know, to some degree reflect in all of our home energy bills. Uh, and so this becomes a very substantive issue. We do also see that the Biden administration does seem to be having conversations. I think the Times and the Journal have both reported that it's sort of talking to Venezuela about uh, a sort of somewhat of a normalization of relations or uh, allowing it to come back onto international oil markets. So I do think everyone sort of takes this extremely seriously. And that's going to do it for today. I'd like to thank my guests, David Rennie, Beijing bureau chief for The Economist, Courtney McBride, diplomacy and foreign policy correspondent at Bloomberg News, and Prashant Rao, senior editor at Semaphore. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Paige Osborne is our managing producer. Maya Garg is our senior producer. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand with help from Matthew Simonson. And Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Nyla Boodoo, in for Jen White. Thanks for joining us. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A.